I'm sat here at my at my desk at home because we um, started a new series on Sunday, but unfortunately the first message in the series failed to record. So um, because it seems so foundational to what we're going to be unfolding in the weeks to come, I felt like it was worth just uh, getting this down on a recording for the sake of those who missed it and for the sake of the podcast. Um, we're going to break from our typical style in the coming weeks. So normally we we take a book of the Bible or a chunk of scripture and then we just work our way through um, what God has to say to us through that. But over the coming couple of months, what I want to do is um, take a more thematic or topical approach. And in particular, I'm going to be thinking about the question of um, what it means to be a church in the city. We are, if you draw a map of London, um, if you, or you look at a map of London and you put a pin where uh, right in the center of the city, that pin is going to be pretty much where our church meets on on, a, on Sundays and our people live sort of around that radius of central London. So it seems to us that we've got to wrestle with what it means to be a church in the city. Now, um, for many of you, uh, you live in London and um, are most likely a Christian. Uh, I'm not assuming that. I understand that not, it's not always Christians who listen to this and that's fine. There's going to be plenty that's relevant if you're not, but just assuming for a moment that you are. Um, the question is, where's the emphasis for you in, in terms of those two realities in your life, living in London and being part of a church? Um, it, it could be that for some of you, the first option is that you live in London and uh, that was, and you were drawn to London, you were drawn to um, being in the city, you wanted to be part of uh, what's going on in the city. Maybe it was a job, maybe it was a, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, um, maybe it was just the lure of the city life. Something drew you to London. And then almost as an afterthought, um, you know, in brackets, it's, it's also, oh, and I go to church there. And so that, that's one option in terms of your kind of relationship with the city and the church. Another is, is that you, um, first and foremost, think of yourself as being part of a church. And uh, maybe Grace is your, your church home, but you you feel part of this church, you feel part of it, and that's the reason you're here is primarily for the church and for what you for your involvement in it, your commitment to the church family. And then for you, almost in brackets, it's like, but yeah, the, the church happens to be in London. Um, you may not love the city or you may not feel particularly drawn to being a Londoner, but it's being part of the church that keeps you here. And then there's some some of some of us who um, sort of combine both of those things, you feel a strong, an equal sense of calling to both the church and to the city. And really what I'm hoping is that in the next couple of months, everyone in our church will be moving towards that reality of being equally called both to London as a city and to this particular church and its mission within the city. You see, if you're, if you're the person who, um, for whom the city comes first, you might need to rethink your relationship to the church. Um, if the church is kind of an afterthought, a low on your priority list, then maybe you need to rethink your relationship to the church. Um, equally, if you're the person for whom the church comes first and uh, and you're not excited or thrilled about or uh, passionate or compassionate about the city that you live in, then my hope is that you will start to rethink your relationship to the city and uh, rethink how you feel about and and love the city that we're in, understand its its purpose, understand what God's heart is towards it. And hopefully, you know, for those of you who are already there, 
you know, you're equally called to city and church, then um, I'll see you in a couple of months' time, eh? But yeah, no, I think this is going to be plenty in here that's in this series that's going to encourage and bless you. I want to begin just reading a few verses from the beginning of Psalm 107, just to get us into the, the theme then as we start to unpack the, what the Bible has to say about cities with a very high-level, broad-brush um, overview in this first message in the series. So Psalm 107 begins like this. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. So what we're wanting to do now is ask the question, what does God think of London? What does he think of cities? What does the Bible teach about cities? And the obvious importance for this is because it, it really controls our posture towards the city. What should we think about this city that we're in? And I want to say right at the start, of course, um, of this message and of the series, actually, that I owe a huge debt to um, the ministry of, of um, Dr. Timothy Keller, who uh, recently retired as the pastor of the Redeemer Presbyterian in New York. Um, probably about 10 years ago, I start, first started to become exposed to his views on these, these themes. And uh, it had a really shaping effect on the way I think about church in the city. I think prior to that, I might have thought, you know, quite highly of the importance of being in London, you know, from the point of view of it being a, a great city and there being um, the, the seats of influence and of government and these kinds of things. But I hadn't really acquired an integrated view. And I saw the church as somewhat of an island within that. And, uh, you know, in a sense that the life of the church could be transplanted anywhere else and it would look much the same. Uh, but really listening to the teaching of, of Keller over the years and just reading um, a number of his books on, and his articles on this theme has shaped me massively. And I want to kind of unpack that his thinking and also what the Bible has to say into the life of our church in this present context. I think um, we're relearning all the time what it means to be a church in the center of the city. So I want to just um, just just mention that huge debt I feel I owe um, in terms of his ability to unpack what the Bible says. So I just want to say right at the start then that in answer to the question, what does God think of London? That God is interested in cities. We have to say that right from the beginning. God is interested in cities. You see, his interest in cities all the way through the Bible. So from the very fact that he speaks to them, names them, speaks about them, you, you start to realize that God has an interest in cities as entities. He, he speaks to cities all over the place in the scriptures or, or about them. You also see that not only does he speak, but he feels 
um, about them as well. That God has um, he has emotions towards cities. That there are uh, these the his heart and attitude towards cities varies from context to context, but you see the range from anger at times to compassion. And of course, sometimes those things coming together in one place for a, a particular city. But but God has a view of cities. And that, of course, means he has a view of London. That It, it means simply that in the mind of God, cities exist as entities, that London is a thing, that God has a view of London, that God has a heart towards London. And that should matter to us as Christians, because um, if God is not indifferent to the life of this particular city, then neither should we be. If God has a view of it, then we want to know what is the mind of God towards London. If God has London in his eyes, then how should we um, How should we become... Uh, aligned with his heart and mind and his view on what London is. And of course, when we're comparing biblical cities with a city like London, there are massive differences, um, primarily just in terms of size. I don't think there's any city in the scriptures that, that comes close to the size of, of London. Um, and sometimes in the very early pages of the Bible, which is where we begin, the the, the cities there are by, rel- by modern standards, no doubt, little hamlets, tiny villages, you know, maybe a few families and some goats or something like that. But, um, but what makes a city a city through the ages? What, what gives a city its distinct character and city nature is the fact that you're pulling together people into close proximity, a life of codependence on one another in, in close proximity, lots of people together. That's what makes a city a city. And that's what, in a sense, brings God's focus in upon a city as well. Because God is interested in people. God is interested in, in, in people and what we do and what we don't do. And when and, and in what a city embodies in terms of the, the character of a particular people or a group of people in a particular location. Cities... Um, Keller puts it this way. He says that the city is humanity intensified. The city is humanity intensified, a magnifying glass that brings out the very best and worst of humanity. It has a dual nature. Now, I think that that encapsulates why God has a particular interest in cities, because it is humanity intensified. The best and the worst of us brought to focus in these tight locations that we call cities. So I want to unpack what God's interest is in cities under three headings. God's interested as judge, as the judge, he's interested as the redeemer, and he's interested as the, the true king. So first of all, God is interested as the judge. This is very much the negative. We have to begin here with the negative. This is where the Bible uh, seems to begin. Uh, the very first city we come across is early in the pages of the Bible. It's actually constructed, you can read about it in Genesis 4, particularly verse 17. It's made by the man Cain. Not long after, he's murdered his brother Abel. So Cain murders his brother Abel and then goes away, uh, starts a family and, and builds a city. That's the sequence in a very short space of a few verses. And you you immediately get the feeling that there's some darkness around this. Because obviously Cain himself is a murderer. But also in those verses in Genesis 4, it immediately starts tracing through his lineage. And we quickly are introduced to the man Lamech, who 
boasts to his wives about how murderous and angry he is. He says things, he says, I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77fold. So he's, he's a man, this is one of Cain's grandsons or great-grandsons who's boasting about his, his murderous intent. And it's all wrapped up with the line of Cain, this kind of rotten line. And 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 you get the feeling that this city, this first city that came into existence, had this culture of death um, inculcated from Cain's line through to Lamech and intensified by the time that you arrive at Lamech. And this is the first time we've come across a city. Just not many pages later, Genesis 11, um, we read about Babel. And uh, Babel obviously becomes not just famous, but infamous through the pages of the Bible. It's the same as Babylon, the same place, the same city, the same location. And Babel really takes on, it becomes more than itself in a sense. Even the, even when it's not a particularly important city, it's still important in the pages of the Bible because of all that it stands for as a symbolic city, of the symbolic of of the pride of man, of, of, of man raising his fist against God, of, of rebellion, of man seeking to, um, to, to establish himself outside of, of his, his, uh, his calling to be a worshipper and to bring glory to God. And, and, and so right the very beginning of Babel, you know, what well, is a story? It's a story of men coming together, wanting to build a tall tower to the heavens, which God looks down upon and uh, is angry with because of you know all that that represents in terms of the pride and glory of mankind in opposition to the living God. And uh, I, I just find it interesting as an aside there that that nothing's changed. That that same basic instinct that's on display in Babel is on display in mankind today in all kinds of ways. You know where nations and cities try and put their glory on display, but not including, of course, in tower building. It seems strange that nothing has changed in, in, in the human heart, that nations, even to this day, compete about, um, about having the tallest towers in their great cities, you know, whether it's at one point, um, you know, the, the Twin Towers in New York, um, you know, through to Shanghai. And, of course, I think at the moment, this city with the, the tallest tower is, uh, is Dubai in the United Arab Emirates which uh, is a is massive tall building, but then just to make sure it's the tallest, has a long pole you're stuck on the top. And what's it about? It's about, it's about the glory of man. It's about, um, about it, it, everything that the city represents in opposition to God and in trying to elevate man above God. And so you keep reading through the Bible, uh, and along with Babel or Babylon, you've got these other cities that crop up, and uh, which which embody something dark, which God judges and is angry against. Um, you've got Sodom and Gomorrah, not long after in Genesis 18. Uh, it says that the angels looked down onto the city. And you get the feeling not only is Sodom, are Sodom and Gomorrah in a valley, but there's also a sense in which that the language is pregnant with this kind of sense that they're dark places and low places that you have to, you, they looked down upon. And of course, as the story unfolds, you realize that there's a culture of rape and of sodomy in those cities. And, um, and they incur the judgment of God that there's, that he, he pours out his judgment upon them as a result. Um, much later in the Bible, um, Nineveh, 
the capital of the kingdom of Assyria, which was the greatest empire in its day, and Nineveh, the greatest city in the world. And when God calls the prophet Jonah as the first international missionary to go from his hometown to travel to Nineveh and go and preach the gospel to them, the book of Jonah opens up with God saying to Jonah that their evil has come up before me. So God looks down on the earth and he sees this city Nineveh and he takes an interest in it, but particularly at this point because of its the evil in the city, their evil has come up before me. Even Jerusalem, um, the city which is supposed to represent so much good, becomes the focus of God's judgment at many times in the scriptures. But you know, one of the most poignant moments is when Jesus, towards the end of his uh, his ministry on earth, is, uh, is he's actually approaching the point of his crucifixion. He 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 comes outside the city and weeps over Jerusalem, and he laments, calls it the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to it. So Jerusalem is this embodies something of again of uh, rebellion against God, and all of these cities have a characteristic. And this is what's interesting, that it seems that cities develop cultures, um, different from place to place, of course, but cultures that can be deeply offensive to the living God because of that, that aspect of humanity being intensified, the heart of mankind being intensified in, in a city. And uh, <clears throat> we've got to ask, well, why and how does that work? And it, it has to do with this element of proximity, that when you bring people together, when you put them in close community and tight proximity to one another, there's something about that that exaggerates the human heart, that makes the unthinkable become thinkable and doable. And so men outdo one another in doing evil until the point where a city can become a very dark place, whether because of whatever idol or whatever sin they're given over to in that city, whether it's power or whether it's lust or whether it's control, whether it's money, whatever it is, <clears throat> that a city can become a, can develop this dark culture. And that has, you know, just bringing this back to home, this, this negative aspect has huge implications for, for London. You know, when God looks at London, what does he see? What is, what is London known for in heaven? What are the worst aspects of London life? What is it that God hates? You know, that's important for us as a church because we've got to we've got to wrestle with that because we've got to ask ourselves what's the, what are the peculiar dangers for the church in the city? What is it that we are exposed to or vulnerable to, which we wouldn't be if we were elsewhere? You know, if if we're in the countryside or in a small town or whatever, and we've got to wrestle with this. And and here's a more personal way of asking the question. Are the things that you dislike about London the things that God dislikes about London? You know, I often hear people complaining or whinging about certain aspects of London life, you know, but it's usually, you know, it's usually the transport system or um, how small the flat is or the cost of living or something like this. And I think we've got to ask ourselves, are, do we dislike the same things as God? Are we... Are we aligned with his heart when it, when we look at the city? Do we do we grieve over the same things God grieves over? Are we just so caught up with our own small view of, of what it means to be in London from a spiritual point of view? So that's the first thing. God is interested 
as, as the judge. Here's the second thing. God is also interested as the redeemer. The Bible has incredibly good things to say about cities. Uh, we started with Psalm 107 for a reason, and um, you may have noticed a couple of references to a city in that psalm. But what the psalm depicts throughout each of its stanzas is various needs of the human heart. And it begins with this describing, and from verse 4, this, 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 this need of the wanderer. It says, some wandered. In desert wastes, it says they're hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. And you start to realize that it's describing how the human life does not flourish in the wilderness. It doesn't thrive in the wilderness. That in the wilderness, we are we scrape out a living, you know, grubbing for food and, and water and struggling to survive. And our lives do not amount to much in the wilderness, the wilderness where we are isolated, where we are alone, where we're not um, supported and, and loved by other people in, in, in codependence. But what, what we also see is that the city is the place of flourishing. So some wandered in desert waste, but finding no way to a city to dwell in. And then God's answer is this, as they cry to the Lord, as it says, he led them by a straight way, they, till they reached a city to dwell in and that they should thank God for his love because he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul, it says, he fills with good things. Now immediately we should pause and think, well, why, why, is, this, why is a city seen as part of the answer to, the, to human longing, to our need, to, to helping us become what we're called and supposed to be in, in God's design? What is it about cities that that has this unique benefit and blessing to human life? Now, we need I, Tim Keller gives us three answers to that, and I want to just unpack those quickly um, before we apply this to our kind of context and what it means for us as the church in the city. Um, he says the three things which which cities offer, uh, which makes them important to human flourishing, are firstly safety and stability safety and stability you know uh, the word civilized is literally related to the word just means sort of citified it means uh, it's associated with with the building and, and the development of a city civilization is citification so what it means is that when you put people together life begins to flourish because of the safety and stability you can imagine in the ancient world where the marauding um, bands of thieves and 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 soldiers and barbarians and whatever a city was the place where you could feel safe where there would be walls around you and the protection of community and uh, and that 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 kind of developed into more complex safe structures for human life like the legal systems if you're out in the countryside someone wrongs you there's no there's no law courts or anything of the kind then what did you do in the ancient world? You settled it as a blood feud between families and you you responded with violence, you know, tooth for tooth, eye for eye, that kind of thing. But the cities, and the Bible shows this in a number of places, had 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 were the centre of legal systems. They had elders who sat in the gates and adjudicated on issues. 
and uh, brought peace to the city by bringing judgment in the right kind of sense. The rule of law overruled. And so that, that first aspect of safety and stability is so important for understanding what cities are designed for. Even in the account of Cain that we were speaking about right at the start, Cain who uh, killed his brother, if you recall how the story goes, God, uh, he, he judges Cain, but he also promises Cain protection and puts a mark on his forehead. And it's interesting that in the very next verses, in the middle of Genesis 4, Cain builds a city. So obviously part of God's answer for protection for the man Cain, the, the offer of a safe and stable life, is the building of the first city. So a city offers safety and stability. Here's a second thing. A city brings diversity. So Keller says, says it like this. He says that diversity is a natural result of density and safety. So where you put lots of um, life together in close proximity and that is, there's a safety to that, then you begin to see massive diversity. And I you see this in nature. You know, what's a coral reef? It's a place with great density and safety, which leads to massive diversity of, of, um, of, of life. And the same is true for humans, that where you put people together, you start to see this overlapping diversity in, in so many ways. You see it in terms of the expression of human life and flourishing. The economy begins to grow along with culture and along with government, all these things are able to um, develop and to grow in, and, uh, and, and layer on top of one another in amazing ways. So um, also just, of course, the fact that, that, that you have a massive diversity of people in a city. Um, I'm, you know, I've, I've been in London for over 15 years now. I grew up in the whitest of white towns in the south of England. But when I moved to London as a late teenager to study at university, um, the first thing that just captivated me was the amazing diversity of people here because people from all around the world flock to London. Uh, it, you know, it's very obvious to me now when I leave London, if I go out into outside London um, in England, you know, you go to a coffee shop or a McDonald's or whatever, and the first thing that hits me is how white everybody is, you know, and I'm, I'm slightly taken aback by it because in London it's, it's you know, you, you walk into one of these places and you could be served by someone from anywhere around the world and that's part of the beauty of a city like this. But cities, they offer, they offer safety and stability, they offer diversity. And here's the third thing they offer, they offer productivity and creativity. So the Bible shows, even in those early pages in Genesis 4, how immediately upon the building of a city, human life goes from just being sort of the gardeners that Adam and Eve were to expressing um, human creativity in all kinds of different ways. You read about Jabal, who, is, who, starts, uh, who, who uh, begins agriculture um, in Genesis 4. And then you read about um, Jubal, um, who he says was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Um, so we're starting to see the, the beginning of the arts. And then Zilla, um, who was the forger, it says, of all instruments of bronze and iron. So we're starting to see the beginning of technology. And you ask yourself, well, how are these things coming about? And the answer, part of the answer, of course, is Cain built a city. And when you build cities, um, agriculture becomes possible. 
um, the arts start to flourish and grow and, uh, and um, you know, technology starts to flourish as well. And why? Well, because when you put lots of people together, suddenly you find that certain people have interests in common and they develop uh, expertise. There's the proximity of knowledge where um, they learn from one another and better one another and stand on each other's sh- shoulders. So you, you have, I mean, we see this today, don't we, in Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley, you know, what, what, these tech companies could be spread out all across the world. I mean, all you need is an internet connection. But the reality is that there's something about the proximity of putting people into into the same locations that develops that expertise, that creativity, that that knowledge growth. And of course, also a city just gives you the chance to focus on one thing. You know, if you're out in the wilderness, you're grubbing around trying to find food and water, then you cannot, you don't have the luxury to become an expert on in technology or in the arts or these kinds of things. But city life enables those things because we depend on one another. So one guy's building houses and other guys, um, you know, creating art and, and so on. And, you know, here's the important thing here. This is part of God's original creation imperative for humankind, that we're to fill the earth and subdue it. It's what's often called as the cultural mandate, that God created us in his image, and his image is reflected most extraordinarily and beautifully through the creativity that crops up in cities, that cities enable the image of God in us to be put on display so here's how Keller puts it. He says um, that we learn that city life is not to be seen as simply a punishment for humanity after the banishment from the garden. So it's not just that the city was a punishment for Cain because he didn't get to live in the garden anymore. Rather, the city, it says, has inherent capacities for bringing human beings together in such a way that it enhances both security and culture making. I think what Keller's saying is that even if Adam and Eve had not been banished from the garden, a city would, and cities would still have been necessary for them to fulfil what God had called for humanity to do and be. So, uh, you know, just that, just as an aside as well here on this point, it just relates to this this flourishing in cities. You know, when you look at the um, the myths around of, of the cultures surrounding Israel in the ancient world, they often attributed man's ability uh, to um, being gifts from the gods so the mesopotamians believed that um that 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 it was these sort of half fish half men mythical um beings uh, which they called the ap kalu that gave mankind the sciences and and writing and art and so on and um and uh, by the way this is from a jewish scholar called nahum sana um also says that the egyptians thought that the, their god thought invented the scales and osiris taught us agriculture and ptah was the patron of arts and artists and artificers and, and letters and these kinds of things now, now the reason why i'm just stressing this is because the bible doesn't say that it says no men did these things when they got together in cities and there's something affirmative about the image of god being expressed through human flourishing in city life that's so important for us to grasp here because it's taught in the Bible, it's revealed in the Bible, and it helps us understand what cities are for. And now obviously, I'm, I'm, we're still on the theme of God. God's interest as the Redeemer, 
So what does all this have to do with us? What does this matter to us? Um, the answer is is partly just understanding the reasons why we, why people want to be in a city like London. Why does why is London a magnet to the nations, and why does it draw people into this this city life where you have safety and diversity and productivity and creativity? We need to understand the answers to that, because the church should not withdraw from these aspects of life. You know, we're meant to be in the mix. We're meant to be not withdrawn physically, but also not withdraw from the aspects of human flourishing that cities encourage, that the church is involved in these things, that the church is part of these things because the church understands God's love for um, for humankind developing and expressing all that we are called to be. I think it's really important for us to understand this dynamic because otherwise we just think the the ideal life is the life in in the wilderness or the life in in isolation or the life in the countryside and I'm not in any way disparaging the importance of life outside cities but unless we understand the importance of cities we won't really grasp why it's important for us to be here and even more important on this theme and more you know, a source of more motivation for us is to, to, to understand this fact, that God loves London, that he looks at London with love. Of course, I believe that God has anger against aspects of human life in London and what we do. But, you know, at a very basic level, I think we can say God God loves London because there are so many people here. Remember how the end of the book of Jonah, when Jonah really just wants God to judge Nineveh, God um, God chastises him. And one of the things he says is, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? At the very basic level, we know that God looks at, at a city like London and loves loves it because of the you know, eight to ten million people who are in the city and his beat his heart that beats with compassion for them. But more than that, I think we can push further and say that God loves the creativity. He loves the um, the expression of of what man is capable of because of what he's put inside us, which is a reflection of his will. And and this is why the Bible doesn't just speak of overthrow. Of course, there are times when God does just overthrow and judge, but often the Bible also speaks of redemption rather than just overflow. Um, there's a couple of times in, in in Revelation, I believe in Isaiah as well, when it speaks of the kings bringing their glory into, into God's kingdom. And you get this feeling that nations all have something beautiful and unique to offer, primarily expressed in their city life, which God wants to redeem, that God wants to um, bring and turn around for his own glory because he created us. And so that's the second thing. God is interested in cities as the redeemer. Now here's the last thing. God's interested in, in cities as the true king. There is something in the human heart that longs for perfect city life. A perfect city 
is sort of what's in the mind of the psalmist, I think, when he offers the city as the solution to wandering, you know, that God brought them on a straight path to a city to dwell in. And that's where they experience the satisfaction of soul, that the soul is filled with good things. And I think what's in mind here is, of course, not the the darkest parts of city life, but the best parts. And and that there's an ideal for what a city should be, that it should have all the best bits of London and none of the worst bits, that it should resemble much more Rivendell than Mordor. And of course, some, sometimes London feels a bit like Mordor when we haven't seen the sun for days on end and people are trudging around with grey faces and, and um, you know, not there's not much love and affection and all these kinds of things. But actually, there's also so much that's captivating and beautiful about city life and that, that's meant to form an echo in our minds, a reverberation in our minds, that this is something we want, desire and long for, that there's something in the city which reflects the very heart, the very will of God for us. Now, this is something you see in um, in, a- in Abraham's life. When in the book of Hebrews, when he's talking about the faith of Abraham, he reflects back on Abraham, that great desert nomad, that man who wandered through the deserts uh, with his livestock and his family and his servants and so on. But he says that at his heart, it tells us that, that Abraham was a city city guy. Um, he came from a city, of course, in, in Mesopotamia, from Ur of the Chaldeans, and a great city in its day. And there was something in Abraham that, that yearned for city life. But but it, it wasn't, he had to be drawn out from Ur because what God wanted was to, to draw his heart toward a different city, the city we really long for, the city we really need. So it puts it like this in, in Hebrews 11. It says, for he was looking forward. It says, it just explains why he, he went out and wandered, not knowing where he was going. It says, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So even in Abraham's heart, that desert nomad, is this understanding that that we need a city to live in and to thrive and flourish in. And this is what brings us into this last idea of God as the true king, that God has an answer to human need. And part of his answer is a perfect city, a, a city that's designed and built by him. Now, with, with that in mind, if you go back and trace the story of the scriptures, one of the things that you can begin to discern is that the Bible can be read as the story of two competing cities, cities that are at war with one another. There's the city of man, which is probably most um, perfectly sort of symbolized by Babylon, but also in any of these other you know, man-centered cities and wherever they displease him, the city of man. And then there's the city of God, God's um, ideal for humanity, um, and so really that's the story of, of humankind through the scriptures, this, this idea of two warring kingdoms, two different ideals, two different allegiances. And the Bible shows that, 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 um, that, that God's alternative to the city of man is not, is not, um, is not a, a, a kind of Eden-like uh, world, um, sort of, I don't know, like a kind of a return to the garden, as it were, but rather uh, 
the construction of a new city which will will be the answer to man's longing. Now, in terms of this idea as God's city, this new city, the king, the, the city that he's the king of, you see this idea unfolding in three different phases through the scriptures. Now, I just quickly want to trace those through um, to, to understand what we're talking about here. The first phase is physical Jerusalem. Um, you know, after David conquers Jerusalem and the Ark of the Covenant is brought to the citadel in Jerusalem and it becomes the center eventually of Israelite worship with the, the, the desire to build a temple there and then the eventual building of the temple there by David's son Solomon. Jerusalem becomes this central focal point for the purposes of God. In fact, in 1 Kings 14, it's even described as God's dwelling place, you know, that God is in Jerusalem. And uh, and therefore, when you trace through the, the book of Psalms particularly, this is why so many Psalms are sung about this city, Jerusalem, why um, it becomes the object of man's longing. It becomes a place worth weeping over when it's when it's when it's um, being conquered or longing for when the Israelites are in exile, that they long to, to return to Jerusalem. And it's, it's, it's why uh, Nehemiah weeps when he hears about the walls being in disrepair and the state of the city. It's why Ezra wants to rebuild the temple, because it, it, has, it, it captures something of the, the work of God in the world in a city, in Jerusalem. In Psalm 48, um, it, it says that great is the Lord and greatly to be pr- praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. It's the joy of the whole earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Um, and so Jerusalem itself becomes a kind of symbol for the plans and purposes and the work of God in the world. His work is focused in upon a single city, Jerusalem. But you, you soon get the feeling, as you're tracing through the Old Testament story, that Jerusalem isn't enough, that it stands for something, but it's not big enough in itself to fully encapsulate what God has in mind. In the book of Isaiah, um, we read things like this, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, which is Jerusalem. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for, the, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean, and shake yourself from the dust and arise, be seated, O Jerusalem. It says, the voice of your watchmen, lift up the voice, together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Now, the book of Isaiah is prophesying the, the, the healing and restoration of Jerusalem. But you start to get this inkling that it's more than just physical Jerusalem, the city that's located in modern day Israel um, and that is you know, a constant source of friction in the world. I think it starts to become a symbol of God's bigger purposes in the world. The book of Isaiah describes the nation streaming in to Jerusalem to worship God as king. And, you know, I, I'm not sure that that's thought to be literal, but it pushes us on to the second phase of what God's city means in the Bible, which, of course, is the church. When Jesus speaks about his people in Matthew 5, he describes he describes the church as a city on a hill. And so there's a sense in which 
you know, leaving behind physical Jerusalem for now, we, we have this idea that the church of the living God is the new city, the new Zion, in which his presence dwells, which is a kind of, which is the source of safety and of diversity and of creativity and human flourishing for people to come into the church and experience these things. But of course, the church is not a physical place. And so there's a difference between the church and and other embodiments of God's city because it's not it's not a physical location. Jesus Jesus describes the church as being the kingdom as being like leaven or yeast, which you you put into a batch of dough at the beginning of uh, and as it starts to prove the uh, the yeast multiplies and causes the bread to the dough to rise so it can be baked. And the church is like that. It's it's a city, but it's also dispersed across the world pressing into and being being um, sort of massaged into and kneaded into the the life of this world in every location every nation every city and every part of human life from government through to arts through to the economy everything the church is present it's leavening it's leavening it's leavening it's bringing god's kingdom it's bringing the city of god it's bringing zion to the nations rather than calling the nations to a physical location that is Jerusalem. So that's the second phase. And then you push through right to the end of the Bible and it all starts to come to a kind of final culmination with the new Jerusalem, which, uh, the, which the Bible ends by describing in Revelation 21 and 22, the city that descends from heaven to earth and then sort of, it becomes the focal, or in a sense, fills the earth, um, so that the earth becomes becomes the new Jerusalem. It becomes the new Zion, the new city, as as the new creation is is uh, is governed by God as the true King. So, the future for mankind is not uh, is not a wilderness. You know, the eco warriors want. So many of them would prefer it if mankind was just wiped off the face of the earth and that we that the earth can just return to a wild wilderness. But the Bible, of course, tells us that was never God's design. God wanted mankind to fill the earth and subdue it, to bring his kingdom to every aspect of life, for there to be this perfect kind of um, synchronicity to the life of God with the life of man and the life of creation, all brought into harmony with one another in and and this is what revelation really culminates in that it's not a return to eden but rather it's it's something much better it's the it's the garden city of the new jerusalem which comes from heaven which is described as having a river of the water of life bright as crystal flowing from the throne of god and the lamb uh, with with the tree of life and its leaves bringing the healing of the nations so we have this this image of this garden city and really, it's the coming together of everything that is perfect and beautiful and good in cities, the best of human life, but under the leadership and governance and the kingship of Jesus on the throne. You know, that, that final city in Revelation is described as having no need for sun or moon to shine on it because the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamp. So finally, mankind is aligned with God. No longer are we, are we like those in Babel, warring against God and, and, and trying to establish our own glory 
in opposition to God, but rather the whole earth is filled with his glory in this final culmination of all things where where um, God's glory fills the earth and mankind flourish in the presence of God and experiences healing in the new Jerusalem, in the new city that we are designed to live in and to enjoy. So why does why does this matter to you now? It, let me just answer that on two levels. If you're not a Christian, I think it's important for you to understand that, that the longings that are described in Psalm 107, you know, for many of you, you, you have wandered in desert wastes, hungry and thirsty with a fainting soul. And maybe you thought, maybe one of the reasons you moved to London was thinking that London was part of the answer to that. You saw the bright city lights and the offer of pleasures and of fulfillment and of satisfaction. And you thought, that's the answer I need to be in that city. And you found that, of course, London doesn't answer those longings. Uh, it can at some level, but quickly you discover that that it has so many deficiencies as a city, you need something else. And I think part of God's answer is a city, and it is, of course, the church. It's That's God's answer to human longing at this time in history that God is calling people into his body, into the church, to experience that satisfaction of soul which the psalm described by belonging to the people of God in this new city, the church. And of course, Jesus describes himself as the gate. Uh, He describes himself as gate to the sheep pen, actually. But if we just borrow that image and think about Jesus as the gate, Jesus is the gate to this city. He's the gate to the church. You can't belong and enjoy being part of the church, unless you know what it means to be saved by Jesus, unless you know what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus, unless you can say, he is my saviour. That, my friend, is when you get to belong to this new city, the city he died for, the city he gave his life for and pours out his blood for to cleanse and to heal. You can be part of that. All you have to do is put your faith in Jesus. But speaking also to those of us who are Christians already, I think it's so vital that we understand the church's mission and understand that that mission can only be fulfilled by our presence in the world. And particularly for us right now, our presence in this great city. We are meant to be here. We are meant to be here leavening this particular city, living in it, trying to and seeking to and prayerfully bringing the city of God into the city of man. We are called both to be part of the church, but also part of the city. We are part of a city in, aside another city, in a city. And that is what we're here for. So friend, I'm I'm calling you to, to reconsider prayerfully. What does it mean to commit to the church and what does it mean to commit to London? Do I have a vision for this city? Do I want to see this city flourish under God's influence in the, of the kingdom and uh, to bring his wonderful, gracious rule here? And Let me just pray. Father, I ask that as we seek to um, engage with what it means to be Londoners and what it means for us to be a city inside a city, I pray, Father, that you would help us to beat with the heart of Christ both for your church and for London, to understand the mind of God towards London and not to be um, those who have a small view of, of a church that's extracted 
from the city, but neither to be those who are so captivated by the city that we we don't understand and don't emphasize the place of the church in it. I pray rather that you would bring us to that point where we feel an equal call to be here and to be part of your people in Jesus' name. Amen.